death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In today's episode of What About Death, I speak with Emeritus Professor Rolly Sussex from the long-running ABC Brisbane radio program, A Word in Your Ear. Rolly explains to us how death is probably the most negative concept in the English language, and he explains how that language pervades and influences our perception of death. So in today's episode of What About Death, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Emeritus Professor Rowley Sussex, who retired in 2010 as a professor of applied language studies at the University of Queensland here in Brisbane. Uh, Rowley also has been a very long-term presenter of the Talkback radio program on ABC Brisbane called A Word in Your Ear. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's my pleasure, children. And uh, my first question to all of my guests, Rolly, is what is your first recollection or memory of death? It was my grandma in 1982, July the 9th, actually. Um, she was 105. Wow. And she and I had spent many, many years together going to the MCG and the football and the cricket and so on. She was a remarkable grandma, wife of a minister, a lovely, lovely person. And I was with her when that little engine just quietly ran down. That was a, a, a really thoughtful moment for me. Um, then I didn't have a direct experience until my father died in 2006 and my mother in 2007. They were both in their 90s. And then my wife in 2013, unfortunately, she was a smoker and avoided going to the doctor. By the time we got her to a doctor for a scan, she had just 17 days to live. And so I sat with her at the hospital and they let me sleep in the room and I told her stories because they tell me that people in a palliative coma can very often hear, even though they aren't actually able to interact. And so I told her stories about what we done and where we'd been and so on. Mm, sounds like a lovely experience. It was not as gut-tearing as I thought it would be. And uh, at one moment, she woke up and suddenly said, we wasted so much time and went back into a coma again. Oh, gosh. So that was 2013. And after she died, I had anhedonia, which is this weird situation where you the, the ups and the downs are basically flattened out. Nothing is exciting, but nothing is really bad. And I was like mental mush. Emotionally, not intellectually, but mm. emotionally for mm. a couple of years. Uh, and so crawling out of that was part of my discovery that there is a, a, there is a life after death for those who are left behind. Thank you for, for sharing that. All right, so let's talk about death because you're going to talk about death and the language of death. So first up, how is the word death generally perceived out there in society? I think it's the most negative concept that we have in English. Mm -hmm. And among all of the words which are laden with negative meanings like murder and incest and so on, death is probably the most powerful and the oldest and the one which carries the most resonance. 
It's also, I think, borne out by the visual images, things like the Grim Reaper, because in our art and in our representations of death, death is a skeleton very often, a skull dressed up in a black cloak with a scythe. Uh, it's not a friendly sort of image. The angel of death is, is related to it. So that I think this fits in with the memento mori genre. Now, memento mori is Latin and it means remember you will die. And of course, once you're born, the only thing you really do know for sure is that you will die. Yes. And so the notion of in inevitable mortality pervades all of this genre of, of art uh, with skulls and things like hourglasses and clocks to show the passage of time, candles guttering and the vanity of earthly achievements. Uh, it's all a bit negative, frankly. <laughs> um, and at the end of that, uh, they kind of get, they run out of puff. You know, what, what comes after, they're not quite sure. And so they, they do the preparing, but they don't take us further. Now, with that kind of visual background, it's not surprising that the words of death are ominous and negative and dark and black and scary. And when we do talk about death, we tend to talk about it indirectly a lot. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, because I think the, the notion that these words sort of permeate our existence, you, you need to be reminded by a personal experience, I think. But remember that uh, in 1900, the average lifespan was 50. And you would expect to have one or more of your children die in childbirth. And quite a few mothers died in childbirth as well. So that the, the experience of death was much more close, I think, to individuals than it is now when modern medicine is keeping us going for 80 plus years. And of course, the, the death stories, uh, they, they have expectations about what's on the other side, but they're not quite sure. And so in one sense, I think a great failure of Christian rhetoric, I'm still thinking about this, but it's one possible interpretation, is that they haven't been able to take away the negative feelings about death, and they've left us feeling scared. Uh, it's an unwelcome sort of thing that we run away from. And the bad news about death is everywhere around us. The death columns in the papers and so on um, are not, not happy reading. So one way or the other, we are born into a language which has an entire nest of words which are negative and scary and prepare us for death in a very one single-minded and in, in some ways un, maybe unhelpful way. Mm. Now, parallel to that, when I was a child, I, I would see films and things and be very, very scared and I, unable to sleep at night when, when the hero was being stalked by a baddie. Uh, but the hero, you know, was going to get right <laughs> in the end. Nowadays, there is a calculation, and I'm never quite sure which way it goes. By age 10, children in America have seen 14,000 dead people, or by 14, they've seen 10,000 dead people. It doesn't really matter. It is an enormous experience wow. of visual death. And the games that they play now, things which are called splatware, where you use the tools on your computer and your various bits for driving the computer to explode people, kill them, tear them apart, and so on. We live in, in, a, in a, if you like, a visual environment where the children are getting exposed to this at a level and with a, a kind, of, kind of intensity, which was not around when I was little, and I think I'd be scared by it if I were young nowadays. So do you think the desensitisation is connected to that negativity? Interesting, isn't it? It's, it's something which we possibly use to protect ourselves from feeling too exposed for it. Mm. Um, the other thing that struck me when I was thinking about today's talk was that you have cards 
for birthdays and for births and for achievements and for graduation, you don't have a happy death card. You know, if, if one of your friends announces that they have a terminal diagnosis, you don't rush out and get them a happy death card. And it's almost as if the two words don't belong together. It's almost indecent to suggest that they do belong together. And when we do talk about death in a kind of positive way, a better death would be fast or by accident or by at night when you're not aware. So the notion that you're sort of present and seeing yourself slipping away is backgrounded and is part of the scary bit. And the more, more welcoming parts are when you don't know about it. Uh, with little forewarning, ideally no pain. You can, in the past at least, die heroically for a cause or a country. And certainly for, since the ancient Greeks and Romans, dying in battle was a very, very heroic and positive way to end your life, particularly for when, men, not, not so much for women. A good death couldn't be a release, but then again, that's a negative thing, a release from pain, a release from illness, from bad experiences. Some people have died for love. Think of Romeo and Juliet. But either way, it's a kind of rite of passage, and the gates at the end of the rite are not welcoming gates in that sense. What's on the other side for resurrection or reincarnation or the continuation of your soul, according to the religion or whatever, is very hopeful. But the path up to death is definitely dark and black and foreboding. And uh, we have this with phrases like losing a battle. You know, they, they lost a battle or lost a long battle. That usually means cancer or some degenerative disease. Not he triumphed and died happily. You know, the, the notion of a good death is, is tricky. And in fact, the, the, the death industry, you know, the, the whole business about undertakers and mm -hmm. so on, is one of the most euphemistic parts of our use of English. Euphemism is when you use a nice word to talk about something touchy or difficult or sensitive. And I think the, um, the whole notion about a funeral parlor is, is I think, a, an indication that we, we are trying to back off from talking about these things directly. You can use the word dead as long as it's not about people. <laughs> right? You can say, this idea died in, the, in, you know, in its infancy. Uh, my motor has died. I'm going to have to buy a new car. This plant has died. I didn't feed it properly. Uh, the weather system has died away. Or insects can die. And in fact, there are ads on the TV where they're persuading you to buy insect killers. These are quite violent things. But I remember being very shocked when President Obama said, we killed bin Laden. Now, he could have done it with a passive, you know, bin Laden has been killed. But using an active, we killed I'm sure because he was a very, well, is a, a marvelous user of English. He had a very clear purpose in mind. This was America, making sure that people who'd done ill to Americans was actually getting revenge. And it really is interesting about how language is such a subtle influence. I mean, even some of these things that you're saying, it's like, yes, we do. But mm -hmm. I, it's not really occurred to me that it's such an integral part of how we use language. And it's, it is so easy to be influenced. It's a system it, of values, yeah. which is carried by the language and inculcated in us when we're young mm -hmm. and growing up. Um, and all of this, of course, has to do with taboos. Now, taboo is a word which entered English in 1777 when Captain James Cook was in Tonga, and it's a Tongan word. Hmm. And it refers to things which are forbidden. You're not allowed to do, touch, or think about. And so taboos cover sacred things, forbidden things, scary things, 
sensitive things. Sometimes they're probably there to protect humans, like various food taboos. You're not allowed, you know, certain religions won't eat, shall we say, pork. Well, pork goes off very quickly in the sun. Maybe that's a good idea from the point of view of public health. Taboos have a lot to do with superstitions, black cats and walking under ladders. And do you know the one about putting a rusty nail in a lemon? No. (laughs) That is meant to keep the evil spirits away. And of course, there are taboos about certain actions like incest and patricide, which is killing your father. Um, In-group murder, uh, you're allowed to kill other people in war, but not your own people. Cannibalism. These sorts of things are subject to taboos. And very central to all of this is the fear of the spirits of the dead and actually naming them. Now, in Judaism, uh, in the Old Testament, we don't know what the name of God was because in Aramaic and Hebrew, the root of a word has just three consonants, J-H-V, Jehovah, right? And we don't know whether it was Yahweh or Jehovah or something else because they never wrote it out. And indeed, in modern Judaism, they don't talk about God like that. They use Adonai or Elohim, which means Lord. And so this is a way of avoiding naming a powerful and perhaps potentially scary person. And so the idea of of don't mention things which are powerful and may may have, you know, they may be cross if you you talk about them. So one way or the other, I think language is definitely a, a very powerful system for forming our views and the and, way in which we talk about it. And taboo is such an interesting thing because it's it seems, my impression anyway, is that we have a sense that there's a bit of a social taboo to talk about death and particularly our own death or the death of those around us. Mm-hmm. And yet we love true crime programs, you know, we read true crime and, you know, books that have murder and mayhem. Yes. So it's only taboo on one level, isn't it? It's- it is. And I think uh, death in the third person, the sort of thing you see on television, is sufficiently distanced so that it actually can be entertaining, which mm-hmm. is a slightly scary thought in itself, because some of those programs are really very explicit and, and violent. Talking about death in the first person... I or we is more difficult. You know, and if I were to say to you, I want this to happen when I die, some people will say, oh, don't talk about it like that, you mm. know, when I pass on or whatever. We'll come yes. to that in a moment. What is really difficult is talking about death in the second person. What do you think about dying? And that, that seems to be the most confronting of all because it's bringing the idea smack bang in front of you and forcing you to respond to the idea and the concept. So... If you like, there are there are different levels of involvement which language can activate. And third person, it's, it belongs out there. It's not part of you or me. I can talk about it perhaps, although I can, if I say the word die, and frankly, when I die, I hope that people will use that word rather than some of the other euphemisms. But that, that's already a bit a bit difficult. And the second person, when I'm talking to you about your death, I think is is... Many people would find that as as confronting and lacking in sensitivity. And it's perfectly true from their point of view. They are are not used to talking about it like this. And it leaves them in a position where they are almost forced to respond to something which they feel profoundly inappropriate and And do you think that's because they're afraid of their own mortality? They don't want to? I think so, yes. And because of all of the myths and stories and things that hang around death, 
Um, and another interesting example that I have before I give you some real bits of language, Lincoln in the Gettysburg speech. This is after the Battle of Gettysburg. There were lots and lots of dead bodies around. And in less than 300 words, he used the word die twice, one die and one died, and, you know, that these honoured dead shall not have died in vain. Uh, at the same event, he was followed by Edward Everett, the governor of Massachusetts, who was a famous orator in his day. He spoke for an hour and a half. Uh, he uttered nearly 14,000 words, and all those 14,000 words, he only had two examples of die, so that it was buried in all sorts of rhetoric and flowery language about it. Uh, whereas Lincoln, in his very Old Testament way, actually, called it for what it was, and left something on the day the, the Chicago Tribune said they thought that uh, Lincoln had been very poor and, and brief and, and not up to it. <laughs> Whereas Governor Everett said he wished he'd spoken the way Lincoln had. But the, the linguistic bits that I wanted to, to show you, it's called collocations. And collocations are combinations of words. And so you can tell a lot about a word by the sorts of words it, it often hangs around with, the adjectives that modify it or the adverbs that go with it, for example. So if death is a noun, then we have things like premature and untimely. And obviously the word that's going to be hooked onto that is going to be something unwelcome, nasty, scaring, unpleasant, sudden or unexpected, impending or mysterious or suspicious. Uh, none of these words is positive. And I've, ominous. That's right. I've, I've got a whole page and a half of this, and none of it's positive. You can bleed someone to death, burn them to death, choke them, freeze them, starve them, condemn them, sentence them, batter them, beat them, club them, flog them, kick them. You know, the things we do with death are really awful. It, it's talked about as a threat, the agonies or throes of death. We have a deathbed. You don't have a life bed. Sentence of death. And, of course, one of the most important penalties we can give to people for being criminals is you put them in prison. You take away their freedom. But if that isn't strong enough, you take away their life. This mm. is capital punishment. So death is, in fact, pressed into service as part of the criminal code. It's like when you talk about, you know, something like a gentle death or a peaceful death. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost like a, it's an incongruency, isn't it? It's almost like it, they don't fit together because we're so conditioned to see death we are in a negative. Yes. Mm. But and and again it is very reassuring to come across words like that. Uh, when I, I've been talking to you about this before and you use these words confidently and warmly and naturally, but for a lot of people it's something which they they feel uncertain about. You know, that death is a bad thing. How can it be gentle, positive? Mm. And we, we see this also in, in a lot of the ways in which language has fudged talking about death. Now there are a lot of euphemisms. And euphemism is a nice way of talking about something that you don't want to mention straight up. So you might say that someone lost a long fight or lost a long battle, which is usually implying cancer. That's another word we don't want to say, mm. or a degenerative disease. Um, or they lay down their life. That's in battle, um, in the military sense. There's a metaphor of, lots of, lots of metaphor of ending. You know, cease to be, meet an untimely end, untimely again, to breathe your last, um, go, go to a better place or whatever. There's a transit idea, um, crossing over, entering the earth, the early gates, going to heaven, going to a better place, going to meet your maker, knocking on heaven's door. There's the idea of a new destiny, went to be with the Lord, went to the happy hunting ground. The idea of peace, I like this one, you know, at rest, come to rest, asleep in Christ, laid to rest. Time things, his hour has come. But again, if your hour has come, it's come earlier than you would probably wish it to be. And in, in some religions like Scientology, apparently they use the phrase to drop your body. 
and which means that the soul has escaped from the framework which was holding it back and is off, as it were, to do what it really was meant to be about. Now, those are all euphemisms. And we also have things like dysphemism, D-Y-S-phemism. And these are disagreeable words, things like worm food or six feet under or pushing up the daisies or cashing in your chips, pegged out, croaked, fell off your perch. He doesn't shop at Walmart anymore. The Americans are into this as well. <laughs> Check into the horizontal Hilton. I don't like that at all. Um, what is the function of a dysphemism? It's almost like thumbing your nose at something, you know, saying, I'm not going to let you get me that way. I'm going to use a disrespectful term to show that I'm one up on you. But of course, ultimately, you're not. And again, the, the other words that hang around with death, things like undertaker, funeral parlor, again, that, that's a, a mortician in the US. Um, archaic terms for undertaker, by the way, included upholder, black master, cold cook, and death hunter. Goodness. These are, are long, long since gone. Also, thanatologist, by the way. Thanatos is the Greek word for death. But again, um, coffin, sarcophagus. That's a Greek word, which means flesh consuming, if you know about the etymology. The word corpse, cadaver, carcass, skeleton, remains. These are our scary words. Funeral and burial have bad associations. You know, such and such was his funeral. It might be his literal funeral, or he did something bad at work and was sacked. So one way and the other, I'm afraid, we're left with a, a mountain of words and a kind of almost a conspiracy to activate negative meaning. And it's not only in English. Um, Chinese has a terrific example involving the word si. Now, in Chinese, the word si, falling tone, means four, the number four. And si, rising tone, is death. And the two are very, very similar. Now, only in sound, they've got totally different characters and they, they, they function differently in Chinese. But in Chinese, four is a bad number like the number 13 in English. 13 is bad because Christ plus the 12 disciples at the Last Supper. And four in Chinese because of this thing to do with death. And Chinese people will pay good money not to have a phone that has a four in the number. Uh, or a car with a four in the number plate. And I have been in hotels in China, where the lift goes one, two, three, five. There is no fourth floor uh, because the, the, the power of the word for death induces a, an enormous phobia. Uh, there's another one, in a way, gentler, uh, involving Australian Indigenous people. And you might have seen on TV that when someone dies, they will put often on the screen, the following footage may contain images or references to people who are no longer with us. Mm. In other words, if you are unhappy about seeing those things, look away or turn the sound down. Because in many Australian Aboriginal cultures, it is not permitted to utter the name of the dead person because you might disturb their spirit. So there's a replacement name um, in Pidgin Jajara, which is a language spoken in the central Australia. Kunmanara is a, a name which will be given to a dead person instead of Bob or Joe or whatever. Uh, Kumanjaji, Kumanjayi uh, is another one. And there are even traditions in some cultures in Aboriginal systems where not only is the word of their name not allowed, but also any word which rhymes with it and so suggests it. So if you've got a friend called Joe, the word go might fall out of use, for an example, because it would potentially alert the spirits and offend them. So this is a way in which you avoid naming something because of what it might happen in the other world. Uh, and I think it shows a lot of sensitivity mm. and it's something which I rather like. So when we come down to the end, 
can we do something to help people? And there's something called the Death Cafe, which I yes. believe is Yes, is we've getting spoken named. that a couple of times, a couple of people that are uh-huh. involved with Death Cafe. It's a wonderful idea. Started in England, I think, right. um, where people yeah. get together from, they just, they're, they're summoned from wherever they have to be because they are, either they've had a death experience or they're expecting to have one, or they are uncertain about death and want to see what it means to them. And they meet just to talk frankly and in a friendly way about it. That's a good idea. Support groups of people approaching death. This is the work you do. People after death, as I was when my wife died, but also for friends and relatives who are in this area and are often not quite sure how they ought to react. You know, do do you turn up to, to see a dying person? That's a, an uncomfortable meeting. So something I'd like to do, and I don't know how we'd go about it really, is to de-demonize some of the talk. In other words, to get away from some of the negativity, the dark words, the um, impending doom idea, and change the discourse so that we have a a death that's come out of the closet a bit, and it's something that we can talk about with more confidence and openness. I like the way that many funerals nowadays celebrate a life, and the notion of celebration is something much more positive than was the, the earliest funerals that I went to weren't celebratory at all. Mm. Uh, they were very grim sort of things. So that maybe we can ourselves approach death with more equanimity and courage and maybe appreciation of the many different ways in which it can be not only a bad or an unknown experience, but actually a, a good experience which brings a natural closure to a life. I'm really surprised at some of the things that you've come up with, a, a metaphoric or euphemistic perspective, yeah. and, and it just doesn't even occur to us. That but it's- because all the words are there and they come along with pre-made negative associations, like all of those collocations we looked at, it's actually difficult to escape from them. And, you know, like a, a, a happy death card yeah. is something which is almost indecent. Yeah. And yet surely that's something that one could wish someone rather than the portending sort of idea that we have. And again, um, language is full of metaphor. Discussion is battle. He overcame the other person's objections. Well, mm-hmm. overcoming is a battle. You know, mm-hmm. you win. Uh, death is one thing that you maybe don't win, but you might learn to live with. Yes, it's a, certainly an interesting subject. I hadn't considered mm. many of these things that you've raised. Then finally, let's talk briefly about your own view of the intersect between life and death. So when you think about it, when you think about life, when you think about death, what comes to mind for you? First of all, the people I've been with when they've died or whose deaths have impinged on me a lot and the way in which their lives have infected me and continue to because I carry them around in my head. You know, yes. they're, they're part of my my continuing existence. And I hope that my family and friends will think the same about me when I die. I, am, I simply don't know what's on the other side. Uh, and I don't think any of us really can. Faith is a lovely thing to have. And I've known a number of people with a beautiful, quiet, confident faith. They know where God sits in relation to their world. I I'm not quite so sure that what we read in the holy books is in fact literally true. But I hope I can live a good life, do good things for my friends, and to make a net positive contribution Mm. to the life that I've been given. And try and um, shift the associations, the negative associations and connotations to death. Well, now that you've alerted me, I mean, I have discovered things in this material that I wasn't aware of before too. 
And I do a lot of talking to community groups every year, and I will offer them a version of this talk. I'm not sure how many will have the courage to want to ask me to do it. But I think this is one of the most fascinating subjects because, well, for example, with COVID, at the moment, the government is about to have to take a decision on what is our appetite for managed death, people who, in, who will inevitably die COVID in due course. We need to talk about it. And it's something which uh, I think we don't want to run away from and we don't want to hide behind euphemisms for. Mm. It, it's something which we need to look at, not only in terms of life, but in terms of quality of life. And this perhaps is the last, last thing I'd, I'd like to make a point about. We tend to regard life as the, the ultimate value. If you don't have life, what have you got? Well, for a number of people, particularly at the end of their life, or if they've got chronic conditions like chronic pain, life is hard and difficult and is a struggle every day. And I don't know the answer to this one, but quality of life and life are two values which we need to try and get a better understanding of. Because I've, I've known some people who had long lives and the latter part of it was not happy. Unlike my grandma at 105, who rejoiced in the visits from her family and wanted to argue about politics and religion. <laughs> uh, if you're like that at 105, I will be very pleased. Yes, no, that's wonderful. All right, well, look, thank you so much for your time and uh, your contribution today. It's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, I hope we can talk again about death and maybe death and culture, because there's a couple of cultural <laughs> questions that I was very interested in there, but we don't have the time for that today. So perhaps at another time, we can consider that as well. With great pleasure. All right. Thank you so much, Rolly. Lovely to talk to you and uh, all the best. Thank you. In the next episode of What About Death, I speak with Dr. Chris Kevorkian, a climate thanatologist from Washington State in the USA. Dr. Kevorkian explains environmental and ecological grief and why we humans often experience grief reactions to the death of ecosystems and to our disconnection and relational loss to our natural world. It's a fascinating subject, and I hope you will join me next time. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.